Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Dexter M. Lemwingu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. The person you heard at the top of the show was Kalambai Annette, president of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, also known as Impedum. Impedum's annual convention will be held September 3rd through the 5th. And so, in this episode of the People's War Show, we wanted to share with you, our listeners, some history of this organization, which is celebrating its 30-year anniversary this year, 2021. The International People's Democratic Uhura Movement was founded in 1991 by the African People's Socialist Party as a mass organization designed to defend the democratic rights of the Black community and to bring African people back into political life after the military defeat that our Black Power Movement of the 60s has suffered. Masamela and I are both members and organizers with Impedum, so we're very excited to share some history with you. Since its creation, Impedum has fought courageously for the African community. The precursor to today's formation was founded in Oakland, California in 1985 under the name People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. At that time, the Uhuru Movement had just waged a popular campaign for community control of housing that broke open the question of homelessness and housing rights. When the organization went U.S.-wide in Chicago in 1991, it was founded under the name the National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. And then with the establishment of branches throughout Africa and Europe, it became the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. The organization's first president was Akua Njeri, also known as Deborah Johnson, the widow of assassinated Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. An important campaign that came out of Chicago was one to free Fred Hampton Jr., who had been framed for attempting to carry on the political legacy of his father. Throughout the years, Impedum has led many dynamic campaigns in defense of the African working class. In 1992, the Uhuru movement defended the Cross City Five. Five African men falsely accused of a murder committed by a white nationalist in that North Florida city. Impedum has fought for justice for African victims of police brutality, such as Sean Bell in New York, Oscar Grant in Oakland, and Ori Jolo, who was burned to death in a police precinct in Germany. In 2001, Impedum organizers attended the World Conference Against Racism in Durban, South Africa, and took the reparations demand to the world stage. When Impedum organizers left, we had our first branches in South Africa. Impedum is still on the ground in South Africa right now, organizing the Bread, Peace, and Black Power campaign following the uprising of African workers there. In 2011, Impedum led the defense of the heroic African youth in London after they set the city ablaze in response to the police murder of Mark Duggan. Impedum also led the struggle for justice for Dominique Battle, Lanaya Miller, and Ashanti Butler, three African girls who were forced into a lake and drowned by the Pinellas County Police Department in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
Following the colonial court system's refusal to indict Darren Wilson, the white couple killed Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, and Peter organized the Black People's Grand Jury, which did put Wilson on trial. Taking a look back at more than three decades of grassroots organizing, we'll hear excerpts of historic speeches, conversations, and even rap songs that help us chart the history of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. We'll hear from Chairman Omalia Shetela, Bakari Olatunji, Kalambai and Danette, and Tambwe Pekisita, and the legendary rap group Dead Press. Amongst the most important tactics and strategies to win Black liberation is the need to win Black people to the position of political independence and socialism, as well as exposing the oppressive nature of the U.S. government and constantly undermining that oppressive power, colonialism, inside and outside of the U.S. borders. In the following clips, Chairman Amalia Shetela outlines the counterinsurgency and the period that gave rise to the National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. The first clip is from the speech entitled The Wolf and the Double-Edged Blade. This speech was delivered on May 31, 1998 at an meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It was sampled by Dead Prez on their Let's Get Free album in the year 2000. M1 of Dead Prez was an active member of the Uhuru movement and Let's Get Free was clearly influenced by his participation in this movement. A full transcript of the Wolf speech is available in the book, Omali Yeshitela Speaks. Let's take a listen. The FBI was not just J. Edgar Hoover, that was the American government that was attacking us. And in this instance, it was the American government that used CIA to crush our movement, to destroy the morale of our community so that revolution would never rear its head in this country again. That was their intention. That was what it was about. And so a movement was crushed down. We had a situation where the whole community, for, for years, the African community, we lived in an era that we characterized one of demoralization and defeat, where you couldn't even talk to the masses about revolution, where the people, the last memory that people had of revolution were tanks in the streets, um, militants being assassinated, and they would kill people in very exemplary ways, the way they killed King shot him in the mouth, the way they assassinated Malcolm, the way they killed Fred Hampton. They didn't have to kill any of those folk in that way. They could have fixed it so they looked like they had a heart attack. They could have fixed it so it looked like they slipped in the bathtub and cracked their skull. They could have fixed it, make it look like a car accident. But they didn't do that because J. Edgar Hoover had made the statement that what he wanted to be very clear was that to young, young Africans that if you become a revolutionary, you'll be a dead revolutionary. And so it was designed to demoralize the community and create this sense of invincibility and white power that you can't fight them without dying. And we run into African people all the time. We talk talking about, let's get organized, let's do something. They say, well, it don't make no sense in getting organized because every time we get a leader, they kill it. That was, that was the sentiment in our community. And people were, in many instances, terrified to sit up in a meeting like this with children and what have you and have the door kicked in and FBI and, and agents and other cops running in with their guns drawn. This was common stuff where the FBI would attack a building and would destroy the materials where they take your newspapers and sit them in the middle of the room and set them on fire or p*** on them or do some other kinds of things and make them... Un this was the terror that existed inside this country. And so this was what we've had to overcome. And now they put the crack cocaine, they put the crack cocaine in our community. 
then, then, and it demoralized the African workers and poor people who are the heartbeat of the revolution. Let me tell you that. That's where the revolution is. And when they did this to the young, uh, the young African workers and poor people, then we saw all these other so-called Negro leaders who would come up attacking the community. The problem was the community. We need to atone. We need this and that. It wasn't that the government was the problem. It was the people who were the problem. And so we had to struggle against this concept that was out there, even among the African working class itself. Because uh, what we found is that the people who were out pushing crack cocaine often thought it was their idea that they were doing it. They thought, I'm out here doing this because this is my idea, but it wasn't their idea. What the imperialists, the capitalists, what white power had done was take away all the other options and say, if you want to live, this is what you can do to live on and put crack cocaine in there. I, I'm not a hunter, but I'm told that uh, in places like in the Arctic, where indigenous people uh, sometimes might, might hunt a wolf, they, they'll, they'll take a double-edged blade and they'll put blood on the blade and they'll melt the ice and stick the handle in the ice so that only the, the, the blade is protruding and that a wolf will smell the blood and wants to eat and it'll come and lick the blade trying to eat. And what happens is when the, when the wolf licks the blade, of course, uh, he cuts his tongue and he bleeds and he thinks he's really having a good meal. He drinks and he licks and he licks and of course he's drinking his own blood and he kills himself. That's what the imperialists did to us with crack cocaine. You've got these young brothers out there thinking that they're getting something that they're going to make a living with. They're getting something they can buy a car like the white people have cars. Why can't I have a car? They're getting something that they can, they can get a piece of gold. The white people have gold. Why can't I have gold? They're getting something to get a house. The white people have a house. Why can't I have a house? And they actually think that it's something that's bringing resources to them, but they're killing themselves just like the wolf who's licking the blade and they're slowly dying without knowing it. That's what's happening to the community. You with me on that? That's exactly and precisely what happens to the community. And instead of blaming the hunter who put the damn handle and the blade in the ice for the wolf, that what happens is the wolf gets, bl gets blamed for trying to live. That's what happens in our community. You don't blame the person, the victim, you blame the oppressor. Imperialism, white power is the enemy. Was the enemy when it first came to Africa, snatched up the first African, brought us here against our will, is the enemy today. That's the thing that we have to understand. And now upon that, and there can't be any compromise on that. No compromise on it. I know your television got stolen, mine too. But we can't limit the discussion and the issue and the understanding to some immediate personal contradiction that we have with somebody who's victimized by imperialism. I know you got a sister or an aunt or a cousin or somebody who ripped you off because they own that stuff, but we can't limit our understanding uh, based on our own personal relationship to it because imperialism is making war against all of us. And he got hooked first and then and he becomes an instrument of imperialism uh, when he does what he does to us in our community. So the community is demoralized. And, and this is a, one of the most effective counterinsurgency tools that you can have, where the actual victim actually believes that he is responsible for what's going on. Where the victim, and then the victims become increasingly demoralized by his behavior, because he knows something's wrong with what he's doing. Of course, of course, 
One of the things that happens too is that the crack addiction, the drug addiction, it creates political justification for militarizing our community, for taking away every right you think you want. You think you got some rights. You think that you got freedom of speech. You think you got freedom of assembly. Uh, and then, of course, uh, they use the existence of the crack that they put in your community as a, as a basis and justification for taking it away from you. And so now, here you have Africans. 34 years ago, 34 years ago in this country, an African who would try to register to join the Democratic Party, 34 years ago, an African in this country who would try to register to join the Democratic Party would be taken out and lynched. Have his sexual organs cut off and stuffed in his mouth. Do you understand? This is America I'm talking about. 34 years ago, that was the case. 33 years ago in this country, an African couldn't drive from one part of the country to the other and stop on the highway to use a service station to pee without facing death. 33, 33 years ago in this country. And today, they want to convince you and I that it's the African population, that's the criminal population, all of a sudden. And that white power has to be terrified of us. This is the circumstances that we're living with today. This is the consequence of the success of counterinsurgency. Destroy our leaders, destroy our organization, disperse the members of the organization, and then turn reality upside down. This becomes a part of the counterinsurgency where now through the media and various other forms, they redefine the relationship, that, the historical relationship that we've always had. And many of our own folk, as I said before, in particular the black leaders, unite with the definition that they create for us. So this is the struggle. And so for the totality of our existence, we've been trying to deal with the counterinsurgency. The counterinsurgency, it was not just drugs. The counterinsurgency also involved what we refer to as neo-colonialism. Some people refer to it as Negro colonialism. And neo-colonialism is white power in a black face. When the masses become too astute and to accept obvious foreign domination, then it becomes necessary for them to use what they call indirect rule, neo-colonialism. Uh, neo-colonialism is white power in a black face, white power in a brown face, white power in a yellow face. Neo-colonialism is white power in disguise, white power masquerading as something else, white power trying to look like you, white power that know how to do the walk, white power in a dashiki. That was an excerpt of Chairman O'Malley Yeshitela's speech, The Wolf and the Double-Edged Blade, from 1998. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show. Produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we are looking at the history of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. So, uh, you know, Dex, I think I was about 19 years old when Dead Press dropped their first singles. I think first they dropped Police State, featuring Chairman Omale Eshetela, and then It's Bigger Than Hip Hop. Those tracks really shook up the scene because, you know, I was always a fan of politicized and conscious hardcore hip hop from a variety of artists such as Karis One, Outkast, and Goody Mob. Yet Dead Prez was different. They were not just conscious, they were organized. What's the trip is that 
I like to think that Dead Prez was my first introduction to the Who movement. But in fact, that's not true. A few years earlier in high school, I took a trip up to Northern California as a part of one of these programs that, you know, takes African kids out the hood and takes them on college tours and stuff like that. I remember we were visiting Berkeley and other schools in the San Francisco Bay Area, and we passed through Oakland. Driving north on MacArthur Boulevard, we all looked to the left out of the bus we were in, and we were all amazed at what we identified as the Black Panther Party headquarters. On the building were images of African heroes, such as Marcus Garvey, Huey Newton, and Chairman O'Malley Eshetela. Now that I think back on it, our identification of what I later found out was the Uhuru House as the Black Panthers headquarters is a testament to the way that the Uhuru movement actually, you know, kept the Black Revolution alive. Wow. See, see, that's profound. That's profound. I remember I was actually introduced to uh, the Dead Press by way of Chappelle's show. Uh, that was my show back in the day. And um, if you remember, um, you know, right after the theme song played, as funny as I felt Dave Chappelle was, I would always rewind back and always be like, what was that beat, though? What was that beat? So I remember one day I Googled it, and it brought me to the hip-hop song. I remember playing the song and then seeing all this martial arts and seeing the word Uhuru, Uhuru everywhere. Um, and then I remember years later, when I would come across the movement again, I would make the connection between Dead Prez and uh, Chappelle's show and the Uhuru movement. I think that's just a testament to just uh, the reach of African internationalism in this movement. So, yeah, that really is profound. Um, you know, Dead Press really did play an important role, as you noted, because they were empowered by African internationalism, you know, the same ideological basis as our show. You know, lots of people know about wolves, uh, police states, hip-hop, day schools, and some of the other tracks, yet one track that really stands out to me is I'm an African. That song, to me, is pure African internationalism. Let's take a listen real quick. See? 
with I'm an African from the 2000 album, Let's Get Free. In this next clip, Chairman Amali Chattel expands on the counterinsurgency and the creation of the National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Our revolutionary movement was crushed in the 1960s. Malcolm X murdered. Uh, more than 30 members of the Black Panther Party murdered in 1968 alone, 1968, 69. Uh, more than 300 members of the Black Panther Party uh, arrested. Massive military sweeps occurred throughout this country, arresting people whose names we don't even know because everybody wasn't a member of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party was just more like a revolutionary center. It inspired uh, African organizations and movements throughout this country. Uh, and just as what happened in Ferguson inspires a lot of people, everybody's out there doing stuff in similar ways. Uh, the Black Panther Party inspired people and people uh, threw up organizations, called themselves Panther organizations because they were so inspired uh, by, uh, by what happened. So a revolutionary movement was crushed. Um, uh, the co-founder of our party uh, was murdered. I was in and out of prison for long periods of time but we did not surrender. And the African People's Socialist Party carried on the tradition, not just as a tradition, but we carried on a movement that represents the continuum of the resistance that African people have been involved in since we were first brought into captivity. We built the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement in 1985. 1985 in Oakland was called the People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. We built it because uh, what became clear to us by now with the defeat of the revolution was that masses of people were demoralized. How can you bring people into political life when the last memory of uh, into revolutionary life anyway, when the last memory people had of the revolution was tanks in the streets and, and, and uh, uh, sometimes uh, 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 military forces uh, marching lockstep, uh, oppressing the communities and things like that. And uh, the brutal assassinations, really exemplary murders of people like King and Malcolm and uh, Bobby Hutton and, and members of the revolutionary movement just gunned down like Fred Hampton. 
so, you know, it was difficult to, and then the organizations themselves destroyed. And if not destroyed, the membership dispersed. Of thousands of people who are locked up, we don't even know everybody who went to jail, in prison. We don't even know their names. People chased out of the country and what have you. So now we're talking about trying to finish the revolution or build a revolutionary movement. You got to start uh, all over almost. And so that's what we build a people's democratic movement. Uh, in many ways, we recreated a civil rights movement, a militant civil rights movement, but this time a civil rights movement that was under the leadership of the revolution. So we're not starting absolutely new. We have a philosophy, we have a political line, we have uh, uh, tactics and strategies that we want to use to bring people first back into political life to do what? Complete the black revolution of the 1960s. Not to get body cameras, but to complete the black revolution of the 1960s. That's who we are talking to today. When we're building this movement, asking people to come to our plenary that's gonna be here January 9th, 10th, and 11th, we're not talking about uh, coming because we're trying to find a way to get body cameras or to get Rahm Emanuel kicked out, even though we say kick him out. And we will be on the front lines trying to kick him out. Our objective is to complete the black revolution of the 60s. Our objective is to say that Lumumba did not die in vain. Malcolm did not die in vain. Fred Hampton did not die in vain. And they didn't die just trying to get body cameras or get Rahm Emanuel or get some nicer treatment by white power. We have to have the power. That's what the party is all about. And so um, we created the People's Democratic Republic Movement, 1985. It was really successful in helping to build um, an incredible movement uh, in Oakland, California. You would have had to be there to see what I'm talking about. Uh, but we had scorched earth. I mean, revolution was everywhere in Oakland during that period of time. And by 1991, it became clear that we had to extend this movement uh, beyond Oakland. And we went to Chicago uh, in April 6, 1991. We had a conference to build the, to build the National People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. And where its first president of the National uh, People's Democratic Uhuru Movement was Akul Jerry, who was the widow of Fred Hampton, who we brought back into political life. Uh, and, and her son, uh, who we recognized as Fred Hampton Jr. We did, we recognized him as Fred Hampton Jr. Brought them into political life. And we went to Chicago because that's where the last nail in the coffin of the Black Revolution was, was pounded with the assassination on December 4th, 1969 of Fred Hampton. But Fred had already said, you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. And Huey reputed, repeated the same statement when he said, you might not have the Black Panther Party, but you got the Uhura House, and you might not have the Black Panther newspaper, but you got the, the burning spear. So you haven't done anything by killing one organization. Same statement that Fred made. And so we went there, and we went there in September, in April the 6th. We went there April 6th because that was the anniversary of the police murder of 17-year-old Bobby Hutton from the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Because they believe in symbolism and we believe in symbolism too. 
And so we also felt it necessary to show the continuum of one period of struggle to another period of struggle. So that's how we happened uh, to get there. So we built NPDUM uh, that became International People's Democratic Group Movement when we moved beyond the United States to other places. NPDUM went to Sierra Leone in Africa, went to Canada, uh, it went to England, uh, it went to, I think, finally into uh, to Sweden, among uh, other places. That was Chairman Amalia Chatella on the creation of the National People's Democratic Ahura Movement, formed in Chicago, Illinois, on April 6, 1991. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we are looking at the history of the International People's Democratic Ahura Movement. One of the important early campaigns of the newly consolidated National People's Democratic Ahura Movement was the defense of the Cross City Five in 1992. In January 1992, a white man named Jody Atkins entered the African community of Cross City in North Florida, adjacent to Gainesville and not far from Rosewood. Atkins admittedly went there to kill African people, which he did. Atkins opened fire on a crowd of Africans and killed one person, 24-year-old Terrence Royce Rutledge. The local police framed five African men for the third-degree murder, Benny Walker Jr., Gary Washington, and Michael, Eugene, and Tommy Lee Carter. Cops used the absurd claim that these African men provoke Atkins to commit murder. The Cross City Five were eventually acquitted of the murder charges, but convicted of the lesser yet equally trumped up charges of incitement to riot and felony criminal mischief. Four years later, the Uhuru movement led the defense of the African community in St. Petersburg, Florida. In the fall of 1996, after cops killed 17-year-old Tyron Lewis. And you know what? The Uhuru movement won. This struggle has come to be known as the Battle of St. Pete. Let's hear some of the recollections of Chairman Omar Yeshitela and Comrade Ntambwe about the Battle of St. Pete. And on November uh, 13th, the day that uh, the grand jury was supposed to be hearing uh, and determining, rather, uh, what the, whether the police had committed any crime in killing this youngster, um, uh, in a climate where the uh, attorney general had already said that uh, while he couldn't say what the grand jury was going to do, that they knew for sure that uh, they were going to be investigating the Uhura movement. And uh, so, so the police killed this, this youngster, but they're going to investigate us, right? Uh, and uh, so on November 13, <clears throat> I had just left the meeting uh, at a church uh, with some of the members, leaders of the, this coalition, the Coalition of Afro-African-American Leadership or something like that, and, uh, and admonished them about their responsibility supporting the Uhura movement. And then we got back to the Uhura house. The police had already begun the process of arresting members of our movement, picking them up off the streets, preemptive strikes, so to speak. And uh, <clears throat> some 27 uh, uh, carloads of cops had um, descended on the Uhura House and I should say ascended on the Uhura House and 
They were involved in arresting one African who was associated with our movement because they said that he had an expired license plate. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as I got out of the car, <clears throat> they arrested the comrade who was with me. They, the police bum-rushed the comrade who was with me, functioning as security, and I was pushed up against the wall, pepper sprayed the comrade, uh, uh, George Hutton, uh, Bobby Hutton's niece, by the way, uh, was with me. She was pepper sprayed uh, in the face. Uh, and the police, uh, in an obvious attempt to uh, provoke uh, a, a situation that would allow them to uh, attack us militarily, uh, riding up and down the street in front of the Hoor House, blocked off uh, the street to prevent cars from getting to our meetings and stuff like that. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, at the moment I had come into the building, and was talking to the people, uh, trying to get some calm because everybody was frantic with the police out uh, as they were. <clears throat> uh, I was told by somebody, who was it? They told me, it was me who said that. Some comrade said to me just a couple of weeks ago that I was the one who came in and said to you that the police said that we have five minutes to get out of the building. This is an unlawful assembly. Otherwise, they're going to be shooting tear gas into the building. <clears throat> and 30 seconds after that, tear gas started coming into the building. So they had attacked the building. They had brought in more than 300 members of military forces from police organizations throughout, from around uh, surrounding counties and uh, the highway patrol. Uh, and they had the dome <clears throat> here. They had <clears throat> the, the place that in our communities that they took to bring a baseball team they had uh, secured as a staging ground mm -hmm. uh, for military forces and, and they uh, attacked uh, this building. They used all the tear gas in the city of St. Petersburg. Gaidi was here. Uh, they tried to kill uh, the, the leadership. Again, you kill the head, you destroy the stuff. So I was there, Chimarenga was in this building, Comrade Gaida was in this building, and as I said, they used all the tear gas and then they brought a light airplane and a helicopter, at least one. And uh, some people seeing that helicopter uh, had visions of what had happened with MOVE uh, just you know, a few years earlier. And, uh, but the people, um, because they, they, set, they, set much, they set parts of the community on fire, I should say this also. And they uh, shot tear gas canisters uh, with the intent of setting the uh, trees behind the Hoor House on fire. And through that, the cars set, they shot tear gas canisters on the roof with the intent of burning it down. They were going to burn us out. They were going to do something to us. And then the helicopter and the people rose up in the community. Uh, and the pigs, uh, in their great wisdom, uh, had prevented members of, the, of, the, of our movement and our party from getting, some of them from getting back into the building where we were. So they, they used tear gas and pepper spray to push them out. So they were out of the building. And the masses were out of the building. And the masses then rose up and fought with the police. And this is where the ghost face appeared, where the Africans with their shirts around their faces, some of them on bicycles and what have you, initiated guerrilla warfare with the police. Uh, and actually uh, brought down a helicopter uh, right out uh, near the Hura House. And so this was a part of the resistance and the struggle that we endured. And because uh, like I said, the counterinsurgency is here all the time. 
you know, so Ntama, you were there. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, um, Chairman, I want to uh, truly appreciate being able to be a part of this panel and um, this discussion about the 90s because that was, uh, 96 was, was an exciting period and um, was also one that was unique for me and, uh, and my understanding of, uh, of what revolution even is and was and it was and is and, and uh, how necessary uh, this party is to uh, African people everywhere. Tyron Lewis was murdered right down the street on October 24th. Um, I hadn't heard anything about it. I didn't know anything about it until later on that evening when it was starting to get dark. And that was, was it's, uh, uh, what's, what's funny is, uh, not funny, but Akile, my daughter, was born on October 22nd. <laughs> so, and she came into the world like a, like just, just a, a, like, like a ball of fire with me because uh, I was in a subjective relationship, getting out of it because, you know, this child was born and now um, I, was, I was leaving my ex-girlfriend's home and I went to the, it was a, a corner store on 5th Avenue North and 34th Street. And it was police and riot gear just blocking the gas station. So I pulled up. You know, I had a nice 1965 Chevy Impala. <laughs> I pulled up, and my music banging out. And, he was, and, and they met me aggressively, told me to get my ear out of here. And I'm like, what's the problem? I'm trying to get some gas. You know, and it's like, nah, get up out of here. So I left. And, you know, I'm going right to the hood. I'm trying to see what's going on. When I got back to, you know, coming down Tyler and Lewis Avenue, 18th Avenue, it was on fire. I was like, what did I miss? <laughs> So my first thing, I knew I had to get here. So when I got here, you know, I couldn't find anybody. So I had to find where everyone was and, and, and I located the chairman. And I was like, okay, now everybody needs to sum me up. Uh, let me know what's going on. So I was uh, made aware of what happened. And from uh, uh, that juncture, you know, we went into action. We went into, uh, you know, mobilizing, organizing and, and all that good stuff. Um, another, well, the chairman was mentioning, um, uh, November 13th, when they announced that they weren't, weren't going to indict the pigs for, for the murder of Tyron Lewis, uh, I knew that the, that the meeting was happening. But I was at work at the time for a, a, a group home, uh, an adolescent men's group home in Coconut Key. And uh, I was at work and I wasn't supposed to be taking these kids to this meeting, but they, I had to get to the meeting, so they had to come with me. So I loaded up the van, and um, when I came and got down Martin King Street, 9th Street, we couldn't get, you couldn't get to the Uhura house. They had it blocked off. I mean, they were blocking off every adjacent road they could. So, you know, crafty as, and knowing my community, I knew how to get there. <laughs> through alleyways, people yards, however, I got the van through there, and I was able to get to the Uhura house. But when I got to the Uhura house, that's when I saw the assault, the attack, and it was, it was, it was horrible because people were trapped and literally they were, they, were, they were trying to kill everybody in this building, I promise you. It, you had old people, babies, they were in this Uhura house and they had no regards to life. Um, but I did see the, the, you know, my thing first trying to, you know, get to, to help and be a part of securing the people was I saw that the, the, the trees were on fire and back where the cars were. So, I grabbed the water hose and got the kids out of the van. I told them to help. 
So we did everything from dirt to, you know, we're trying to get the, get the, the flames out and things of this nature, snatching branches out of, the, out of the trees, trying to, you know, dust them off and whatnot. And the police were heavy. And I, I, I thought that, seriously, that uh, <laughs> it was going to, you know, people were going to really die mm -hmm. that night. But the cavalry arrived. When I say that was the first time in my, in my life ever experiencing, like, true warfare. When I saw those brothers come out, see, the, I, I saw the community come out, and them t-shirts around their face, running right past me, and all I, all I heard was firepower, and I said, y'all get down. <laughs> I said, get down, and when I say it, it was exciting, it was, um, it, it's, it's like, you know, I knew, I knew that we were going to be all right at that point, because mm -hmm. uh, the community, they know what this organization is about, they know this organization, and the chairman mentioned, you may get 15 people to a meeting, mm -hmm. but let something pop off. Mm -hmm. They know where to come. They know where to come for leadership. It is right here. And it is, mm -hmm. um, it is yeah. our, our, our duty to continue to work. Yeah. It's our duty to continue to work. Yeah. Uh, anything less than is, is yeah. you know, you might as well, you know, yeah, you might as well not live. <laughs> it was interesting because Gaida and I and Chimaringa, Chimaringa said, Chimaringa said, I told him that if we survive, the city will never be the same, you know, and because, uh, I mean, we didn't know we were going to survive. We really didn't know that. And, uh, and there was this, this minister, Gaida, you remember the preacher who was here, who was, he was going <laughs> to, he was going to go out. And uh, talk to the police. Uh huh. I don't know how many people saw that movie, uh, the old movie, yeah. The War of the Worlds, uh, <laughs> where the so-called aliens come and and the preacher goes out and he's going to talk to the aliens. <laughs> I was that was Chairman O'Malley Eschatella and in Tomway Bexita on their experiences in the Battle of Saint Pete. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Today, we're looking at the history of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Evidence in the Battle of St. Pete and Petum has defended the right for African people to resist colonial oppression as we did when Lavelle Mixon killed four cops in Oakland, California in 2009. In the following clip, Bakari Olatunji explains the political context of the vigil and march he and Impedum held in honor of Lavelle Mixon. We're here today to do no different than what you saw yesterday as they pay um, their respects for their slain comrades. We pay respect for a young brother who we felt symbolized the resistance of African people who are terrorized daily by the police force, which are an occupying army in the African community. And not just here in Oakland, but all throughout this country, you see every day black people are dying at the hands of the police. Oscar Grant was no blip on the radar screen. Only thing that made Oscar Grant what it was, it was caught on video. So we look at Lavelle Nixon, who was not political who is not an activist, but who took the stand that we hope people take in terms of resistance to a very vicious, a very brutal uh, colonial system where the police are the first arm of the state and that the police do not represent anything good in the African community. That's a historical fact. I don't make that up, and that's the reality that we deal with. So again, Lavelle represented that, and we're here to pay respect for a brother who we think took a very righteous stand in the face of all kinds of terror that comes down in our community at the hands of the police. Must go! Must go! Must go! The march in itself is a
as a symbol to organize people and let people know that there's another side of the coin. There's a voice out here. This is the voice of the slave. What you heard yesterday was the voice of the slave master. The reality is we're a colonial people who are oppressed and we want economic development and social justice is what we do. And that was Bakari Olatunji, following the vigil for Lavelle Mixon. Bakari is currently the African People's Socialist Party's Western Regional Representative. Now you know, Dex, the Lavelle Mixon case was less than a year after the cops murdered Oscar Grant. And within the context of decades of colonial assault against the African community in Oakland, that really marked an important period. Yeah, yeah. You know, being just a tad bit younger than you, uh, give or take one or two uh, decades, uh, this period really marked a coming of age uh, moment for myself and others. Within about eight years, we saw the murders of people like Sean Bell, Dan Roy Henry, Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, and Mike Brown. So this became basically an entry point for many of us into the movement. That's true. That's true. It certainly was for the now president of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement, Colin Bailly and Annette, a lifelong resident of St. Louis, Missouri, where Mike Brown was shot down by police in 2014. We have a clip of President Colin Bailly explaining how this movement brought her into political life. Let's take a listen. So my name is Colin Bailly, and it means Colin Bailly means brave, never give up. And I truly plan to live up to that name by all means. And I came into an organization because um, I lived in this little place called Ferguson. Before Ferguson popped off, we called it St. Louis North County. But the media <laughs> put emphasis on Ferguson, and so I'm going to say that because most of you heard of Ferguson. So I lived in Ferguson when my ground died, and just like many, many others, I was flushed out into the streets. And I was flushed out in the streets because tear gas was coming into my house and I had two small kids. And one of them was a preemie and she had a situation with asthma, which she never had asthma attacks before, but because of the tear gas, it activated the asthma. And so I, you know, as a concerned parent, I'm trying to get her some help. Mm -hmm. I want to find out what's going on. And literally I could not understand or grasp what was happening into my city. And only thing that I ever had to understand anything was 66 books of the Bible. I knew more about 66 books of the Bible. I knew more about Jesus than I knew about myself. At the time I was 35, I didn't even know or heard of Marcus Gordon. Mm -hmm. Just giving you a backdrop. Mm -hmm. And I'm not unusual. You know, um, some people got a background where, you know, your parents told you about Marcus Gordon and things like that, but you probably just as backwards as I was. <laughs> don't give yourself no pattern with that yet. <laughs> and so, at the time, I didn't know, I, I had not heard of Marcus Garvey or knew any of those things. But one thing that I did know is that I had two brothers that was murdered. I had a brother that had went to jail at 18. He got shot by the police at 17. He had a size of, they say, a piece of crap that was on the streets would have sold for $20. He said that he didn't have it. You know, we don't know or whatever, because, you know, that's what they do. They put dope on us after they do things mm -hmm. to us. And he went to jail at 17, they tried him as an adult, and he just came home in March of this year. So I knew that I was colonized, but I never had the word colonialism or colonized or whatever that even meant until I met Chairman Amali Yeshitella. And I know I got a time limit, so I'm trying to make the story short, you know, as fast as I possibly can. And in Ferguson, every 
bootlicker that you could possibly think of. Every leader, so-called leader, had hit the grounds and none of them made no sense. My pastor, for the first time in, the, in my whole life, which was my uncle, made no sense because I wanted real solutions. If I was going to fight back, teach me, show me how to fight back so we can win. Because if I'm at war, I'm planning to win. I'm not getting in the ring to fight nobody to lose. So I wanted to win. So I was looking for somebody to explain or sum up the situation that I was in in a way that I can fight back and win. So what I want to say is you got to join organizations. I don't care. I know you join the church and they whack. And every kind of organized anything that we ever seen have sold us out down the river. But I'm saying that I can't tell you another this but what them repeat on. I'm the international president. When I met chairman, my life made sense. I've been taught how to fight. The slogan that I live with, that most of my comrades, you know, they say that I say it at every meeting, but usually when I'm criticizing them about something, because we have to use criticism and self-criticism if we plan to win. Yeah. I can't just be kissing up to you and tell you the truth. I made a post on Facebook and said that people will kiss you in the mouth when you tell them a lie, you tell them the truth and they're ready to fight. Right. So, right. you know, one thing that I tell my comrades all the time, the harder we go in so-called peace, the less bloodshed and war. Right. Yeah. That's not my slogan. It's somebody else that can't yeah. tell you who said it, but Sunday I heard it. Sunday Thank you. So every time when I heard that, because it wasn't an easy decision for me to come to the conclusions of revolution, because I understood that revolution meant war. It meant war. Mm -hmm. But no matter if I wanted to participate in a war or not, a war was happening in my life for 40 years. Every day. Yeah. From crack cocaine in my community, simply marching, saying we must stop killing each other, save my sons, why are we killing each other, why are we crabbing at each other, why are we so hating on each other, all these things is not going to stop the conditions that we face every day. That's right. So I understood that the only conclusion that I could come to that made any sense is revolution. Right. But to come to that conclusion, you mean you have to have an art to war. Right. And so that's where African internationalists come in. And I know you should be at this point, I know me, I was sitting at the edge of my seat like, give me more. I want to know what did that mean. I needed a theory because I understood that everything that have ever been given to me have came from my oppression. So why would he give me anything to help me get out of it? Yeah. That's right. So I had to return all of that. I had to humble myself, sit at the feet of Chairman Amala Yeshatella and the whole Central Committee, the party, to the Black is Back Coalition and to be able to say, feed me. I want to know how to fight. Yeah. I have two daughters and I love them. And when I pushed them out, I swore that I would give my life for them. And I meant that by action, by my what I do. So everything that we do has to be a strategy on how we're gonna get us get us out of here. So we don't have options because it's gonna it's gonna go down regardless. Yeah, so we might as well prepare ourselves and be ready for it. So that's what EPDM is. It meets you right at the political door, bring you into political life, and then help us to use strategy and tactics to help bring the masses to be the movement of Marcus Garvey in the 20th century, to help us to use strategies like um, African Shores Genocide as an international campaign that we launched right after Mike Brown died, where we get his word that we have to understand this is genocide. They never had planned for us to use the word genocide, but when you look at the definition of genocide, African people, self-hate, horizontal violence, ain't that self-hate anytime you would pull the trigger on yourself? The school system, 
that tell us lies. Tell us that Christopher Columbus discovered the world. Come on now. <laughs> Black History Month, they always want to tell us about Martin Luther King, the Martin Luther King that they want you to remember. That's right. Not the Martin Luther King that said, I, led, I, I feel that I led my people into a burning building and then shortly after he died. Mm -hmm. yep. But that's not the slogan that they want to give you. They want you to kumbaya, our way out of here. But like Chairman Amalia should tell my leadership said, that if we could sing our way out of this, I say, come on, let's sing. If we could pray our way out of this, I say, come on, let's pray. If I thought I could put all my stones and do a spell, we'll spell our way out of this. But the bottom line, we have to be materialists. We need a strategy. We need to know direction and who our enemy is. And we must know who we are. Right. No matter where we come from, from the Bahamas, from Jamaica, from Africa, to right here in the United States, from Ferguson to New York to Brooklyn, no matter where we are, we are African. We're one billion strong. That was President Columbia and Annette. On April 6, 2021, the 30th anniversary of Impedum, to be exact, President Columbia waged a campaign for the seat of alder person in St. Louis's third ward, a community where 30% of Africans live off $5 a day or less. In her campaign, issues like the rapid gentrification of the black community were exposed. The increased wealth of the white community at the expense of the black community was exposed. The question of the brutal police violence put on our people was brought into City Hall and the status quo politicians, previously unchallenged, were made to sweat, stutter, and answer questions they never had to before. That campaign marked a turning point and a new day for the African community. The Impedum Convention on September 3rd through the 5th will be broadcasted on the Burning Spear TV channel on YouTube and on Impedum's Facebook page. It's free and open to the public. Chairman Omalia Shetela will be presenting during the panel on completing the Black Revolution, where he'll explain fascism versus colonialism and socialism versus capitalism. Yes, yes, yes. There'll be reports from the work in Africa and a panel discussion on the Africans charged genocide campaign and the African reparations claim process. And I'm particularly excited about the panel getting fit for the revolution, dealing with healthy eating, emotional control, physical fitness, mental health, and Project Black Onk's COVID-19 protocols. So for anyone interested in checking out the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement's convention, you can get registration information and see the program at impedum.org. That's I-N-P-D-U-M dot O-R-G. You have been listening to the People's World Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. In today's episode, we discuss the history of the International People's Democratic Uhuru Movement. Our theme song, Colonial Virus, was written and performed by Alikia Ngoma. Shout out to the People's World Radio Show's production, research, and promotions team, including Jaja Robinson, Empress Livewire, and a hipster panda. So we say down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. This has been the People's World Radio Show. Produced by WBPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida.
WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.